It turns out when you listen to music, if there's singer, the voice of the singer activate your own facial system. Even if you do not sing along with the singer, your brain that controls your facial expression is automatically activated. So this is a, one of the、uh, collateral benefits we learn from a Parkinson research program with music. You know, initially we just want to train their walking. Is that right? We didn't realize that actually the music can activate their facial muscles automatically. So over time, not only their walking, but also their facial expression. Substantially improved. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. This week, I'm delighted to have opera soprano Renee Fleming and neuroscientist Dr. Bin Hu on the show. As part of her role as artistic advisor at large to the Kennedy Center, Renee has spearheaded a collaboration with the National Institutes of Health that brings attention to research and practice at the intersection of music, health, and neuroscience. The title of this week's episode on the show is "Ave Maria: Healing the Brain Through the Power of Music." Hi, Renee and Bin. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, hi, man. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, Renee, I thought Ave Maria would be a good song for us to discuss on the show because, being that it's a, a prayer or an appeal for help, I think it exemplifies a lot of the work that you've been doing at the intersection of music and medicine with music in the mind. Is is that fair to say? It is. I mean, you know, our most primal response to music is an emotional one. And that's incredibly important, and it's something that we all crave right now. And we crave connection, and music is one of the best vehicles for that. Yeah, of course. This, I'm sure, this is a song that you've sung thousands of times in your in your career. I wanted to ask what what's the context in which you're most often asked to perform Ave Maria. So I've I've sung it in the context of both recitals with piano, but also as a as a kind of a prayer and something that's iconic. It's one of probably five songs that everyone around the world responds powerfully to, and has taken it on as their own. It's really、yeah. incredible when a song gets to that status. I want to add. I just earlier today I was listening to a podcast interview with Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote a book that. Many people have recommended to me called Sapiens, and in talking about the intersection of medicine and religion, he pointed out that in the New Testament, the stories about Jesus have more to do with healing the sick than anything else, and that's something that had never occurred to me. And it's also relevant to how we're talking about this song. It's been one of my favorite books in the last few years. Just the way he kind of concisely puts together human development, and it, I, I, it's it's extraordinary. And there's so much from my education some decades ago that just doesn't match up with what people know now. So I was having one aha moment after another. But it is true. It is interesting that it was healing that was the foundation of Christianity. To me, this is one of those songs that. The melody, the lyrics, the harmonic movement—you know—in the accompaniment, it's all so complementary and it works together so perfectly. And I, I feel like the music is also expressing what I feel like the prayer is trying to express. That 
I thought that might be a good opportunity to talk about what neuroscience can tell us about instances of of harmony or or consonance or or dissonance for that matter. Yeah. So uh, there are brain imaging you know, studies to look at uh, the consonant versus deconsonant sound, how they activate brain. They're very different. So for music perception, actually, there is a high level map in the cortex that is devoted to particular elements of music. So this is what we know. Actually, there is a large number of studies. It is the most active area of arts and neuroscience. That's the music research. And pardon me, where in the brain physically is the cortex? Oh, it's like a a cap. It's most on the surface, on your brain surface. It's called cortex. So it's the the entire the entire surface of the brain. Yeah. So you see those gyrus, you know those uh, curves. You know when you see this picture, those are the cortex. They're they're folding. They're, they're like paper. They're right? a piece of tissue, and then but they folded. So if you stretch out entire cortex, it could be uh, something like ten meters wide. You know? And could you explain? How do we interpret data in neuroscience in, in brain imaging? Is it, you know, are we looking for increased blood flow? Is it electrical activity? What, what is the finest point of data we can analyze in the brain at this point? For humans, there basically there are three categories. Is that right? One is you measure blood flow changes. Sometimes we call them bold signals because when, whenever there's activity, mm-hmm. the oxygen level changes. Mm-hmm. So you can pick up the oxygen level change through a magnetic field. Mm. So, so that's just a functional, functional MRI. That's okay. essentially there is that signal. Yeah, the second method is electrophysiology, which you can record either use a probe to get inside brain in the patients that are undergoing surgery. For example, Parkinson patients, they have to, sometimes you have to uh, implement a, a brain pacemaker so actually, you can insert your electrodes. Mm. Same for the epilepsy patient. You can record them, and then you can ask a, pe- a human to perform a task. Mm-hmm. So then you can find out which area is doing what, mm-hmm. right? And the last one, I think, is most these are most common used is called PET, PET scanning, mm-hmm. post uh, electro tomography. So that is very unique because uh, you can inject a chemical. In the brain, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. So if your activity causes changes of brain chemistry, and you can visualize it mm-hmm. using this technology, okay, yeah, it's my understanding that the way that neurons speak with each other is they will release a neurotransmitter and it will be absorbed by the other neuron. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And so, is that something that you can actually see with with the with the measurement tech that we have now? Yes, yes, with, with, uh, you're talking about the transmitter, then that, that's the PET. That's technology. You can label that transmitter. Okay. Either it could be a glutamate or it could be a dopamine, especially dopamine that responds to music. So you can actually uh, follow where these uh, transmitters uh, appear and disappear. No. Okay, wild. Renee, how do you experience listening to music versus performing music? Well, they're two different things. Um, although perform in performing, I'm also listening. Of course, I'm, I'm also experiencing the music because I want to transfer my own connection and emotional response to what it is I'm performing to the audience. But I, when I listen to music now, it's 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 for work. Mm-hmm. It's either because I'm learning things, which I'm 
typically doing all the time, mm. or it's for pleasure. You know, and those and the, the listening for pleasure is typically more passive mm-hmm. uh, for me. But it's also, you know, I'm always I'm very often looking for uh, a kind of a flow state. I'm looking for to be in the zone, to be calm. You know, sometimes once you know, sometimes if I'm working out or something, we often use music. I actually nowadays as a as a tool mm-hmm. to get us into a certain state. You know, whether it's energetic because we have a lot to get done, um, maybe we're exercising. Or it's to calm down, it's to feel a little bit dreamy. The rhythm, I think it has a lot to do with our ability to have that sort of relaxation. People are now studying, you know, 40 hertz, for instance, as perhaps something that can really have a huge positive effect on the brain. I mean, amazing to think that there would be a non- a non-invasive treatment uh, based on on vibration, for instance, that's one of the things that people are looking. So, forty hertz, you can't you can't hear that, can you? Um, I think it, you can feel it, right? Um, you know, I experienced it at the MIT lab. Uh, you can definitely feel it, and they'll very often add higher partials to it, mm. uh, so that you do get the sort of also the oral experience okay. with it. But it's it, it's fascinating, and of course, lights can also be set to 40 hertz oh okay so the two together you know are potentially powerful and it feels what relaxing um it's mesmerizing i would say you know it is definitely mesmerizing and i mean it's very we rarely give ourselves the opportunity to stop and focus on something or we're constantly multitasking constantly um having our attention drawn to you know bells and whistles and and very often quickly yeah. So uh, it's it's interesting to kind of be in a booth and have just that vibration experience. And it's emanating from what? A speaker? Yeah, the vibration comes from a speaker. And of course, it can be set by a synthesizer, some sort of digital creation of sound. And I know Mickey Hart right now, The Grateful Dead, is in uh, California now working with Sakir Hussein. And they're very much interested in vibration. He, that's been his passion, actually. And he would use that low, the lowest tones to kind of help his audience. And this is the Grateful Dead audience Mm -hmm. in a huge stadium get into a trance state. Mm -hmm. And brilliant Rhiannon Giddens, the singer, said recently, uh, was talking about, she's very much a historian, a music historian. And they were talking in performance about the fact that it wasn't that long ago that in, you know, parts of, of Southern Italy and Greece and that part of the world, people used dance to heal Mm. so and it was really a trance type of dance that would go on sometimes for a week if someone was very ill wow so there's a lot about our relationship to the natural world that we have forgotten Mm. and scientists are beginning to look at this again ben what what do you see if you're looking at the brain of someone who's performing versus someone who's listening to music (laughs) haha i actually uh i think rene probably it's the very few people who actually do have a, a, a brain ima- image mm-hmm. uh, that one she was seeing. Uh, there was the fMRI, one... yeah. I have an experiment at the NIH. Yeah. So I was in the machine for two hours, and they uh, took images of me singing, speaking, and imagining okay. singing. And it's on the website of the uh, Kennedy Center and for our sound health project. And it's really fascinating because imagining singing was had the most powerful effect on the brain. It had it affected more parts of the brain. Yeah. And what do you attribute that to? Well, they, the scientists who looked at the uh, 
were analyzing the images were surprised. And ultimately they said, well, okay, you're a singer. So singing for you is easy and you don't really have to think about it. So for another person, it probably would have been the strongest, uh, you know, garnered the strongest response. But for me, imagining singing took a little bit more effort because I had to tune out the sound of the machine and the, and then there were multiple repetitions mm. and et cetera. So that was the analysis in the end. I would imagine that's because there's some amount of muscle memory that's going on. Absolutely. So there, there was study actually uh, to look at the so-called muscle memory, whatever, of a pianist. So if you learn a piece of music, you play it on the piano, you remember it, and then you go back into the scanner, if you just purely play that piece you just played, that was exactly the muscle that control that fingers, that area is activated. So it's probably the similar to a singer, you know, the vocal When muscles. you go in and imagine it. No, you just listen. You just oh, listen okay. to that piece. You just play. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's automatically uh, brings out the muscle, entire muscle, activity wow. while you play. Well, wow. so, so listening, a listening experience is going to be entirely different for uh, a musician who perhaps has some experience or relationship to the piece of music than someone else. Oh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure if somebody did a, a detailed analysis with a group of singers, you know, at the level of Rene, for example, uh, there, there, there must be a very fundamental difference. You know, for an accomplished pianist, so what we found out is actually there's way more white matter connecting the two sides of the brain. What's okay. white matter? White matter is the, it's like uh, fibers. Those are the wires that connect mm -hmm. neurons, okay? So you need those wires so that to send and receive the message. And they only exist separating in between the two hemispheres or is throughout the brain? Whenever you have a neurons that need to communicate to each other, the mass goes through the fibers, these axons, to send out the electrical pulse and then to release the transmitter. Okay, so there's long fibers, for example, from the cortex going to your leg muscle, and there's also short fibers just talking okay, between okay. neurons. So, you know, it's really interesting. A, a few years ago, I, I learned a bunch of bossa nova music in Portuguese. And, you know, because I don't speak the language, I really had to drill it into my brain to the point that it was just completely, I was completely relying on, on muscle memory to perform this music. And I would, I got a gig at this restaurant in the West Village for, for brunch and that I was performing like the tables were right in my space. And I would just pray that someone with a fascinating conversation would be seated next to me because I was reliant so much on muscle memory that I, I couldn't help but tune out the experience of performing and be sucked into whatever was going on around me. <laughs> you know, I, I have to tell you, first of all, Portuguese is as hard as any language I've ever sung in. Huh. because it is so hard. The diphthongs, the, which ones are nasal, it doesn't ever sound like it looks on the paper. I really so struggled with it too. And there's no way to learn a language by rote and be able to sing it without it being in muscle memory. In my experience, whether mm -hmm. in, in my case, it would have been Russian, Czech, some languages that I don't speak. Um, okay. And Portuguese is one of the most challenging. Well, I find that very encouraging to hear you say Yes, that. don't feel bad. Okay. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> Renee, how do you experience singing by yourself versus singing with other people? 
Well, I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm almost always a solo artist, but I am singing with an orchestra typically or with a pianist. And in an opera, sometimes there will be a duet or a trio or an ensemble of, you know, a number of singers. So um, you do have that experience and it's really fun. It's, it's the idea of listening and creating a sense of ensemble so that you want to be on the same page rhythmically. This is the purpose for the conductor. So the conductor is the one who will lead us and make sure that we're together. And very, sometimes people perform without a conductor and they just listen very carefully to each other. But in terms mm-hmm. of the actual experience of singing, it's not different. I mean, I don't know how often you might find yourself in a kind of community setting where you're singing with other people. I mean, have, have you done as much in, in recent memory? Well, only as I described. I don't, I don't sing in a chorus ever. I mean, not since I was a kid, let's put it that way. Right. Okay. What I'm hoping to get to is I I heard you talking about I guess that it was a dinner party you'd attended with with Francis Collins mm-hmm. or maybe is that where you is that where you met him? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And am I correct that you actually led a sing along that included several Supreme Court justices? We did. That was a quite extraordinary experience and Francis brought his guitar that just seemed like the right thing to do after a hard day. They had just decided marriage equality that day. And uh, it was a tense environment because obviously they didn't all agree, Um, but they were gracious and they were so extraordinary because they're used to disagreeing and vociferously and also eloquently and then still getting along, you know, Scalia, Justice Scalia and uh, Justice Ginsburg are, were all, he's passed away, but they're very great friends So let this be a lesson to us in our time of political division that we can disagree, we can agree to disagree. So it was a beautiful thing, actually, for Francis to bring his guitar, and we just started singing some of these terrific uh, songs that everyone knew, This Land is Your Land, and, and, Mm. uh, you know, The Times They Are a Change and was the the most interesting choice. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did you find yourself scanning the room to see who was participating? Well, there was only a small group of people, so we were all right. together. It was 10 people, I think. And okay. it, it, it well, was this, the, special. It was very special. I mean, that counts as community singing in my book, Renee. You know, it's, it's it, anything that's a group, if you're family, if you're mm-hmm. singing together at the holidays, um, certainly churches. You know, I grew up singing in, in a church choir. My father was a choral conductor. So all of that. And now, of course, I applaud when I see this incredible music therapist named Tom Schweitzer in in Virginia who has a stroke choir. So people who've suffered from a stroke sing together. Oh, wow. And these are very healthy, wonderful activities for community, for developing community and for also for healing, for allowing the brain to exercise its plasticity, which is something we're all very excited about now. Singing period or singing with other people? Well, both. I mean, singing with other people and developing community is so important. Um, But singing period is another, you're using language and you're also, um, you know, people who have had traumatic brain injury or who have have regained speech or stroke, they've regained speech from singing. It's one of my favorites. So this may be a, a good opportunity for me to ask you, was it at this dinner party that you spoke with Dr. Collins and you decided to begin this initiative or had it started before then? So I was new as our artistic advisor at large at the Kennedy Center, and I said, wouldn't it be great if these two national institutions 
work together to, um, we'd, we'd like to provide a platform for science for your work mm-hmm. as he's a terrific musician. So he understood intrinsically that music in the brain has tremendous possibilities. And there was a lot of research already starting. So he's been incredibly committed to supporting these efforts. And in fact, the NIH gave a sizable grant to music in the brain research just recently. Oh, cool. Well, he certainly has his hands full right now, I would imagine. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, somebody said to me today, they don't think he's slept in weeks. Oh my God. Is he based in, in DC? Yes. Yes. So the NIH and the, the CDC, they all work very closely together and they're all, and he runs uh, the NIH. So it's a huge responsibility. And so could you talk a, a bit more about why it was you were inspired to, you know, assume this mantle of public health advocacy or, or getting more resources uh, driven towards this intersection of music and science and neuroscience specifically? Well, first of all, it fascinates me as a musician. It's something you always, you know, and singers, what we do is so complicated because we're using involuntary muscles. We can't even see what we're doing. It's internal. And Mm -hmm. uh, so the mind-body connection was something I was very curious about from a young age because at that time, medicine was kind of denying that that existed. So in in just those couple of decades now, of course, it's it definitely accepted. But I just thought, I felt like the audience, the general public should know more about the health benefits of music for childhood development, for all of the therapies. Bin Hu's work with Parkinson's patients is so mm. inspiring, incredibly inspiring. And the the fact that he's developed an app that could treat, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at once is amazing. So just to meet someone like Ben is, is to me extremely exciting because it informs my work as a singer. And it's also something that I love to share with my audience and they are fascinated by it. Ben, could, could you speak to some of the work that you're doing uh, with music and Parkinson's and the, in the app you've developed? Parkinson's uh, responding to music is, is, is a, a, a phenomenon that was actually first, I would say formally documented by Oliver Sacks. You know the name, you know yes. the awakening, yeah, in New York. So actually, we met uh, in Calgary when he came here. So so I talk about my work, and actually, he was extremely interested. Uh, he ar- asked me to carry on. So actually, I did. You know, in the past fifteen years, this is mainly is my work, uh, music and the brain uh, in Parkinson's. It's called Ambulosono. Uh, it's a program where Patients, Parkinson patients, they put an iPod on their leg, so they start to walk. So they use their leg to bring out the music. It's almost like use your leg to play piano. You know, this is actually, uh, it's not like a a, a speculative work. So there's a very solid science about Mm -hmm. how the music can affect the brain area that controls walking. Okay, so this connection from the music area in the brain to the area that controls mm-hmm. walking. It's, it's, a, it's, a pheno- it's a phenomenon actually, and you can see when they hear a piece of music using the PET brain imaging, that area controls walking is light up, regardless whether you move or not, okay? So we don't know why, we don't know why, but I, I suspect it's because of uh, in the animal world, you can't see very much because of the trees or whatever. So the sound 
actually is the primary cue that you use mm. to pray or okay. to escape. So that's why this 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 is a very old brain network. So what happened in Parkinson's is that you know as Oliver Sacks noted that some of these patients they can't they can't walk, but uh, but they can dance. Actually, they can dance perfectly. A few years ago, actually, there was an earthquake in Italy. So there's Parkinson patients. They escape from their residence faster than anybody else. Okay. So so then why under certain conditions? For example, like this called the the motor urgency, or uh, with music, they suddenly they can move. This is a, just an anecdotal observation. But what, what we did is that we use this. Uh, particular phenomenon to create a uh, technology. So basically you can use either an iPod or a, a sensor that uh, wrapped on your leg, okay? So the patients will walk, but you can set the size of their steps. So they, they only walk faster or larger steps, the music will play, okay? So they, 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 then they learn this and over and over hmm. again, so then they're brain uh, created a new pathway okay so because we usually do not use our leg control music you know this is similar to a pianist so you learn to play piano over time your finger movement be become very fluid so now you basically you put this uh, music player on your leg and then you use your leg to control the music play so what we found out actually exactly precisely as what we predicted there's the left side of the uh, walking speed control area uh, shows very dramatic change. This is after six months. What is uh, more interesting is that all these patients, once they have gone through this, uh, like two, over a, a period of two years, gait function and then their overall motor function uh, improved uh, dramatically. Okay, so, so their clinical progression seems slowed. So you had observed that Parkinson's patients could, uh, they could dance without visible tremors. Is that the case? Okay. It's not all of them. Okay. Some of mm -hmm. them, if they do not have their medications on, right. okay, they can barely stand up. They can barely walk. Mm -hmm. They can't. But once the music is on, they can dance uh, with a perfect dancing step. Okay. So this is a, like a, a, a motor memory. Uh, okay. If you ask these patients, you know, they, you have to have the music they're really familiar with, and especially when we have been dancing with before. Uh, Music-related motor memory mm. that is in their brain is mm. permanently stored there. It doesn't go away when they have Parkinson's. So it's almost okay. like a reserve. And are you telling me that they, there is observable skill like they... You wouldn't be able to tell that they have Parkinson's. They're dancing that well and that fluidly. Some, some, few, not many. Okay. There's a beautiful documentary. Uh, Mark Morris's dance and, and his dance troupe have, have started a program that's now international. And the documentary is okay. called Capturing Grace. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it really shows okay. um, how this works. Uh, and Ben Hu, of course, knows the science. And he's created something that can treat more people. Yeah. Uh, quickly, but but these motor issues that that develop with certain disorders can be treated really well with music. You know, again, if it's if it's this mm -hmm. or if it's a, a brain injury or stroke, um, suddenly people can regain skill 
and the music helps them kind of helps the brain make connections that it wasn't making. And it's it's really extraordinary. And is is this similar to how someone who might have a, a really debilitating stutter, how they how they can sing perfectly exactly. but can't speak? Exactly. It's the same kind of thing, exactly. You're using a different part of the brain, you're accessing another part of the brain that enables a certain skill. Did you see the Bill Withers documentary? No. It's incredibly moving and, and just to see him, I mean Oh, I'm writing that down. Just to see him interact with uh, I think he visits a school of kids who have stutters and I mean he had a stutter and oh. so he was able to sing. Um but they go into that. I'm I'm writing that. But I mean, just like if you talk about musicians, Glenn Campbell, you think about also you know oh, right, how he was right. able with Alzheimer's disease to be to play music, play and sing really mm. late into his disease. And that it's the last memory to go musical memory mm. in, in patients. And I saw that myself with my husband's mm. aunt and the last year of her life, she could only sing songs. Wow. So this is why science wants to look at this. Yeah. And, and music is also giving neuroscientists kind of side door access to understanding more things about the brain separate from music. Correct. Right. Is that right? Right. And I would say the therapists translate the information directly to the patient uh, when there's an intervention, a therapeutic intervention. And um, but in the meantime, scientists are really interested in understanding why these things work. I mean, Francis Collins says it really well, you know, about that the Brain Institute is a relatively new division at the, the NIH. And that's they're looking at anything and everything that affects the brain. And science has proven that music is quite powerful. Yeah. My take on that from kind of working and seeing these different presentations for a couple of years is that it has to be evolution. This has to, um, back mm -hmm. to Sapiens, this has to do with the fact that we practice social cohesion and communicated very often with musical sounds for much of human right. history. And modern history is a just a you know, a speck yeah. on that. Spectrum. You know, we were, for the show, we were just interviewing an acoustician to talk about the physics of sound. And, you know, I mean, sound is the first sense that you use to take inventory of, a, of, of your surroundings and how he pointed out that when we see lightning, we observe it and it doesn't necessarily cause us to panic. Uh, though when we hear thunder, that that is what really inspires fear. And it's the lightning that's actually physically threatening to us, not the thunder, yet it's the thunder that we hear and that that's what causes the fear. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And he attributes that to, you know, our, our lizard brain having to respond quickly to something in our environment, be it a, a rattling snake at our feet, for example, or... Right. Dinosaurs. Exactly. I know. Um <laughs> You had mentioned um, one of the things that you were interested in was was music and child development. Could I ask you to speak to that? Well, there are a number of studies now that are are excellent, and it's been proven that children who play an instrument, for instance, this is mostly valuable for a child who is playing and learning how to play an instrument. And it's something about the eye, ear and hand coordination working together that really does help develop the brain. And of course, we know that it you have to have okay. discipline and that you have to have focus to excel at something so complex. And for children in low, the lower socioeconomic status, it's even more uh, beneficial. They can, they can really improve. It takes a couple of years, mm. but it, it does make a big difference. So I highly recommend it. I mean, it, we want all of the senses, you know, as many senses as possible working. And, and they're using music now with autism treatment. 
and autism uh, research uh, successfully. I mean, I know in the last 20 years is funding for public education uh, has continued to run dry, that it's the the arts programs are the are the first to go. But with the rise in autism statistics, have you seen a turnaround at all? Well, certainly for autism programs, uh, music is very uh, much a powerful part of that. As, as somebody said, there was a very compelling presentation in Hong Kong when I was there in October and Ben, you were with me. And it was a woman who works with yeah. autistic children who said, in many cases, these children have a terrible time communicating with words, but they can communicate with music. She was showing examples of children really enjoying themselves, whether it's drumming or experience. It's an experiential way of learning that can be very useful uh, when you're, you're dealing with children who have developmental problems or 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 dealing with any kind of learning disability. Music is something that, I mean, you never have gone to a town center and seen a band play and not watched every young child dance or move or bob. It is such a basic human response. Again, I think going to evolution, it's joy in that moment, the response. Yeah. Also, I mean, earlier we were talking about the power of singing music together and, you know, the opportunities for healing that that might invite as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, there, are, I think uh, Julian Johnson in, in California has done a, a major study with chorus singing. And I haven't had a chance to meet her or to look at this, but I'm sure it's it's excellent. I know there was one in Lund- in the UK that said that singing in a choir improves your immune system. So we love that, especially now, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the godfather of communal singing, Pete Seeger. He was always encouraging his audiences to sing together, you know, and he would, he would actually, I saw footage of his 90th birthday at the garden and he, they're doing amazing grace. And he's like, okay, now you people in the mezzanine, you're going to take the alto part. Here's your note. And then, and then here's the, here's the tenor note up here, you know, and then, and he, he gets everyone to sing together. And I, and he was always, he pointed out that you know, not everyone can sing on key, but if you get a big crowd to sing together, they can sing on key. And I think that there's, that makes a very, oh, that's interesting. yeah, it makes a very powerful statement. And, um, and I think it does a lot of things. It, it can, it encourages people to overcome some fears because singing is, is frightening, especially if you don't do it every day. And, right. um, I, I read somewhere that you actually had your own relationship to stage, stage fright somewhere in your career. Oh, I did. Absolutely. You know, a couple of times and it is really a challenge. Um, And we know lots of incredibly famous people who've stepped away from their careers for five to 20 years Mm -hmm. because of it. So I had a rough year the last time I had it, but it was, I hung in there. It's better if you keep going. And just push through it. You push through. And ultimately I had to see the audience Rather than seeing them as a judging body, but to see me as a sharing body. Mm. And and that made a huge difference. Just thinking about it differently. Wow. So it was like a mindfulness practice? Um, No, it was more an attitude. It was more of changing. Again, there's so much that we we make decisions about things, decide that they're hard or decide that I can't do this or whatever decisions we make, we can unmake and decide to think about it in a different way. So that helped. Understanding too, that by nature, I was a shy person and not gregarious. I didn't have a natural performer's personality. Mm. You know, I had to kind of unpack all of those things. Okay. 
And this is this is well into your career after you've had tremendous success, correct? Yes. In fact, you could even call it a success conflict. I wrote about that in my book, The Inner Voice, because I thought this isn't something I've heard other people talk about. And we see it happen. People who achieve amazing success, but success that brings them so far away from their roots that they sabotage it Mm. subconsciously. Yeah. You know, whether it's through drugs and alcohol or sex or, you know, there's so many ways we've seen it with Hollywood stars, with politicians, Mm -hmm. people will often develop a deep discomfort. And then, so your ability to kind of unravel that, that speaks to neural plasticity, right? That these are, these are things that you can undo or retrain. Yes. And, you know, tracks of thinking, you know, habits of thinking can be destructive. Mm Mm-hmm. And the whole purpose for cognitive behavioral therapy is to examine them and say, is this, should I really be thinking this 10 times a day? That helped me a lot too, yeah. discovering that mode of, of psychology. Wow. That's very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. Um, you know, before we close, I want to say to you, Renee, I, what's so cool to me about your spearheading this work is, you know, dare I say it, opera is not the most accessible form of music. It requires training, it requires technique, and it's not often the case that you can see it performed outside of cities. And it's one thing for a protest singer with a banjo like Pete Seeger to encourage everybody to sing together, but for an opera singer like you to, to stump for promoting the benefits of doing as much, I find uniquely powerful. So I want to thank you for doing this work. Oh, thank you. That's great. I appreciate that. Well, I'm glad you're a musician. So where are you based, Matt? Uh, upstate New York, just outside Cooperstown. Oh, beautiful. You, well, you should go to Glimmerglass. Oh, I have. And we went during a huge rainstorm. And you know that opera house has a, a metal roof. And so... Oh, dear. Oh, forget it. It was beautiful, though. I mean, it was <laughs> it was so thunderous. And um, right. it was exciting. Okay. That's neat. Well, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to to speak with me, and uh, I hope you you know are able to stay safe and healthy. Thank you, and you too. Great. All right. Thank you. Be sure to check out Music in the Mind live with Renee Fleming, a new online webinar series on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. You can tune in at youtube.com slash the Kennedy Center. The series will explore the powerful impact of music and the arts on human health and the brain. Guests will include former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, neuroscientist Daniel J. Levitin, and world-famous author Deepak Chopra, and more. Sing for Science is co-produced by The Talk House. Our intro and exit music is by Italian artist Panorama. Please be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>